the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. The world is a complicated place. You need someone to expose the political fakers, fixers, and takers, and to cut through the mindless chatter and misdirection to help you make sense of it all. That person is Dan Proft, and this is The Dan Proft Show. Welcome to The Dan Proft Show. I'm John Hederacher from Powerline, sitting in for Dan tonight. Powerline is a website, if you're not familiar with it. If you don't read Powerline, you should. It's powerlineblog.com or just Google Powerline, one word or two, and we're the first thing that uh, that comes up. We've been um, commenting on the news and sometimes making the news on the Internet since uh, 2002. So if you're not familiar with Powerline, please do check it out. I want to start out tonight's show by talking about something that I never imagined all my life that we would ever be talking about again. And that is the possibility of disunion uh, of the United States of America actually fragmenting and falling apart. You know, I grew up in the 1950s and 60s in a town in South Dakota. And I had a very clear view of American history. And, and you know, the Civil War was, was very much in the past. Slavery had been a great evil. And the Civil War was was fought to resolve once and for all whether America would be a free country or, or a slave country. And and the forces of good, as I saw it, being a northerner, uh, the forces of, of freedom, uh, anti-slavery, abolition, uh, fought and won the Civil War. That question was forever put to rest. And uh, since then, there have been some rocky spots, but race relations had had improved uh, continuously over the last uh, century leading up to to that point. And uh, America was was solid and stable and had uh, we won the Second World War. And and, uh, and of course, in those days, we had the Cold War going on. But uh, no, no, no one questioned the foundations of American democracy. Nobody questioned the United States Constitution. Uh, nobody questioned that the founding of the United States of America was one of the great positive events of of world history. Maybe the greatest, certainly one of the greatest. And and, and no, nobody questioned that 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 some of these issues of of uh, of disunion and racial strife uh, had been resolved and uh, and and put behind us. But now, rather suddenly. Uh, I guess this has been brewing for a while. It's been brewing in the public schools, I suppose, for a generation. That's part of the problem. But it's really surfaced uh, just very recently. And and all of a sudden, uh, we find that our country is under attack in a way that I certainly never expected. I don't think any of us expected uh, not too many years ago. And and disunion, I think, is becoming... um, an actual possibility. I still don't think it's likely, but but it's becoming an actual possibility. We're going to have a guest uh, in the next couple of segments coming on who's written a book. Frank Buckley has written a book called American Secession, The Looming Threat of a National Breakup. And we're going to be talking about the idea that America could possibly actually uh, fragment because we have 
citizens now who have such a radically different view of our country and the nature of our country and of, and of our Constitution and of freedom. The whole concept of freedom, free speech, freedom of any kind, under attack in a way that I don't know that it ever has before in, uh, in American history. And so we're living through a very strange time, and I don't think any of us can really foresee uh, what, what the end game will, will turn out to be. And I think, the, you know, that there's a lot of things you can point to, whether it's CHOP in Seattle or, you know, the, the, the riots and the burning of the city of Minneapolis, which is where I live in Minnesota. A lot of the things that have gone on. But, but I think the symbolic center of this of this strange era that we're living through is the attacks on on statues and, and monuments. And, and and this started a couple of years ago with attacks on Confederate monuments in the South. And if you listen to some of the Democrats, they try to tell us that's really what it's all about. It's only Confederate statues that are coming under attack. And that's only right. That's only that's only reasonable. But of course, Unfortunately, that narrative is completely false. It has not, it's not it's not Confederate statues that are coming under attack or Confederate monuments or Confederate history. That's a pretext. And this is one of the number of things, of course, that President Trump called correctly. He said several years ago, it may be Confederates today, but just wait. Pretty soon they're coming for George Washington and Thomas Jefferson. And a lot of commentators scoffed at that and some of the Democrats scoffed at that. No, ridiculous. That'll never happen. But, of course, that is exactly what we are now seeing. And it's kind of ironic, you know, for for those, uh, the Democrats that want to say, uh, oh, it's only the Confederates uh, that are under attack. Well, no, actually, the statue of Ulysses Grant got uh, taken down. Well, Ulysses Grant, not exactly, not exactly a Confederate. And, um, and And if this is all about race and slavery and discrimination and so on, which is the which is the pretext, well, what the heck, Ulysses Grant did more to abolish slavery than any man other than Abraham Lincoln. Oh, and by the way, speaking of Abraham Lincoln, uh, monuments to him are coming under attack. Uh, When the riots were going on a couple of weeks ago, we actually had federal uh, troops standing out in front of the Lincoln Memorial in Washington, D.C., so that it wouldn't come under attack. And uh, in Boston, you know, Cradle of Liberty in Boston, there's a famous statue of uh, of Lincoln that they actually moved. They they took it out of sight because it showed Lincoln freeing a a symbolic slave, and and for some reason that is no longer acceptable to uh, to American liberals. The the monument to Robert Gould Shaw, uh, which is really a monument to the 54th Massachusetts Regiment, the the the, the unit that was glorified and in, in, it was honored in the movie Glory uh, some years ago. Uh, Shaw, the commander of the of that black uh, famous black uh, black uh, regiment, that monument on the Boston Common that got defaced by by liberals and in maybe the ultimate uh, ultimate irony, one of the statues that have been torn down as a statue of Frederick Douglass, the great former slave abolitionist uh, who became a friend of, of Abraham Lincoln, one of the great, great figures in the abolitionist uh, movement. A statue of Frederick Douglass was, uh, was torn down. And uh, Thomas Jefferson, uh, George Washington, Christopher Columbus uh, have all come under attack uh, here in Minnesota. Some liberals uh, announced in advance that at five o'clock on a particular afternoon, they were going to tear down the statue of Christopher Columbus that that stood until then 
on the grounds of the Minnesota State Capitol in in St. Paul. And they showed up at 5 o'clock in the afternoon, according to their press release. And there were some uh, state troopers there under orders, uh, you know, not to let any members of the general public interfere with uh, these so-called demonstrators. And they, they pulled down the statue of Christopher Columbus. And, of course, what they're saying is that the whole founding of the United States of America was a mistake. The whole discovery of the new world was a mistake. And uh, it's all bad. We're all bad. That's, that's the, the point that they are, they are trying to make there. And if you doubt the, the radicalism of today's Democratic Party, we're not just talking about a handful of ragtag radicals and lunatics. Uh, this goes to the heart of today's Democratic Party. And uh, I'll just say one example of that, and that is uh, the lieutenant governor of the state of Minnesota, a woman named uh, Peggy Flanagan, uh, who did a tweet on the 4th of July. On the 4th of July, she did a tweet. It says, Mount Rushmore is a symbol of white supremacy, of structural racism that is still alive and well in society today. This is lieutenant governor of the state of Minnesota, Peggy Flanagan. This is her tweet on the 4th of July. And she goes on, it's an injustice to actively steal indigenous people's land, then carve the white faces of the colonizers who committed genocide. So so in the eyes of the lieutenant governor, elected lieutenant governor of the state of Minnesota, um, Washington, Lincoln, uh, Jefferson, these are people who committed uh, genocide and Mount Rushmore is a a monument to white supremacy. And this was put out by her on the 4th of July. Of course, the day after President Trump had had given a wonderful speech from Mount Rushmore, that symbol of America and American patriotism. And it has come directly under attack from 21st century liberals. And you wonder sometimes, how, how, how can we live together in a society, in a, in a polity, in, in a nation, with people who hate our country? Ilhan Omar, another example, the most ungrateful person in the world. America brought her over from a refugee camp in Africa and elected her to Congress. And all she can talk about is what a terrible, unjust place the United States of America is. I mean, it's really astonishing. It's like the, the world record uh, for, uh, for ingratitude. But, but you ask yourself, how, how exactly do we go forward and, and collaborate in a, in a nation, in a society, with people who hate our country. Well, that's what something we're going to be talking about with our, our first guest tonight who's coming up right after this break, uh, Frank Buckley, the author of American Secession, The Looming Threat of a National Breakup. We'll be right back after this. Show.com. Welcome back to the Dan Proft Show. I'm John Hinderacker filling in for Dan tonight, and we are joined now by Frank Buckley, a professor at Scalia Law School and a columnist for the New York Post. Uh, and, and Frank is the author of the upcoming book, American Secession. The Looming Threat of a National Breakup. Frank, thanks for being on the show. Hey, John. Thanks for having me. 
Frank, I want to get to your book here in a few minutes, but I'd like to start by talking about a column that you wrote in The Spectator called America Held Hostage, because it, it ties in very closely with, with an image I've had in my head here over the last few months, and that is the liberals or the Democratic Party uh, I envision as being like a two-year-old throwing a tantrum. And basically, the two-year-old, the message of the two-year-old to his parents is, you better do what I want, or your life is going to be miserable. You know, you won't get any peace and quiet until you do what I want. And I, that's kind of the theme of your column, right? That is sort of what we're that's, seeing that's, from the left. That's totally it. I mean, you look at what's happening, and you say, this is absolutely crazy. And I, I wrote a column to say, no, it's not crazy. It's totally rational, right? It's it's a chicken game, right? It's like your two-year-old. Basically, what the left is saying is, you know, uh, we want the ball we want to get our guy elected in November, and all this craziness is going to continue unless we elect elect Joe Biden. That's that's what, and the, and the message is elect Biden, and it'll all go away. Yeah, I think that's right, Frank. I really do. I mean, I, the riots, uh, the vandalism, the, the 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 tearing down of the statues, chop, you know, all this kind of stuff. I mean, yeah. do, do you think anybody's going to set up a chop if 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 we give in and elect Joe Biden president? Yeah, right. You know, it's 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 and the great thing about Biden is they don't even need a candidate. They can run. They can write Joe from his basement, you know, and and, you know, but were he elected, you know, I guess the left would then say, that's it. It's time over. You know, no more craziness. We're not going to have any more statues coming down. We're going back to normal. I think implicitly that's what the promise is. And and uh it's nasty, and it's also really so hypocritical, because when you get down to it, it's not as if Biden's election would make things any better for black people. I mean, what would help black people would be, you know, things like good policing, um, choice, free choice of schools. And economic right? growth. And, yeah, yeah, law and order yeah. and economic growth. Uh, that's If you don't yeah. live in a gated community, right, that, those are the things you need. Yeah, no, I mean, if you're rich, you know, if you're right, you know, if you're a rich, white, liberal living in the burbs or in a gated community, if you're sending your kids to a private school and if you're not threatened by immigration, it's not going to take jobs from you. You know, you can say, I'm all right, Jack. Right. But, it, you know, it's it's the black people who need the jobs. And then before the pandemic, the black unemployment rate had descended to historic lows. So. You know, it, it, it was a good economy for them, but that's totally irrelevant to, you know, the people who are running Joe Biden. It's it's uh, it's about power. It's not about justice. No, I think that's right, Frank. One of one of my beliefs is that normal people don't understand the will to power. You know what I mean? Most of us don't really have this, this this burning desire to boss other people around. We don't really care that much how other people live their lives. People do things that I wouldn't do all the time. I don't care. You know, it's their life, not mine. Yeah. But there's a very, very small minority of people who aren't like that, you know, who have the will to power. And understandably, those are people who tend to get power, you know, whether you're Stalin or Hitler or Mao or you know, it's the will to power. And and it's very easy for people who don't who don't have that kind of psychotic personality just not to understand what what these people are after. And it, and in, in this case, it, it, it's power. 
Hey, John, I live inside the D.C. Beltway. <laughs> you want to talk about psychotics? I get it. All right. These yeah. are my neighbors. Yeah. And it's really interesting to me, Frank, because to, as you, the point you, know, you made is correct. I mean, th- there's no serious pretense that electing Joe Biden or giving the Senate to the Democrats, which could happen, too, you know. There's no serious mm-hmm. pretense that that is going to make anybody's life better. They don't even talk about improving economic growth. I mean, I'm so old, I can remember John Kennedy, you know, and the rising tide lifting all the boats and cutting income hey, taxes. I, I'm a, I, I see myself as a Kennedy Democrat, which means I guess I'm a real conservative. Yeah, by today's you standards. Know? But they don't even talk about those things. You know, there's there's no pretense that, that uh, anything Joe Biden is going to do or a Democratic Senate would do. Uh, is going to improve the economy or create more jobs or 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 bring order to uh, disorderly communities it's it's really a hundred percent about about those people wanting power yeah and uh, like I say what I what really bothers me is the hypocrisy of suggesting it's about black lives okay so you know you know what the murder rate is like in Chicago but not too many people appreciate how immigration hurts black people. Because the immigrants, the illegals particularly, are the people taking jobs away from black Americans. They're the guys being hurt. Okay, so if you really wanted to, if you thought black black lives matter, right, you'd open up charter schools, you'd permit competition, and you'd close the border. That's that's how you make black lives matter. Matter, and you have a growing economy. None of which, you know, a Biden presidency would give you. No, as a matter of fact, you know, Trump has been the best president for for African-Americans since Reagan. A lot of people yeah. don't realize that in the Reagan boom, uh, the only people who did better uh, in terms of uh, rate of growth, income growth, the only people who did better than whites were blacks. You know, yeah. and and, uh, and Trump has, has kind of picked up that banner and he's been uh, he's been a terrific president in very practical ways for for black Americans. Let me ask you this, Frank, you know, the, the campaign is starting to heat up, at least on television. It's a weird campaign with Joe Biden in his basement and, and Trump not really able to hold rallies of the kind that, that he wants to hold, you know, as 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 part of his campaign. I would like to see uh, Trump in the remaining months before November uh, go around to urban areas in America, as he started to do in 2016, and make a really explicit pitch for black votes and for Hispanic votes. Uh, I think he could get a lot of them. Uh, what, what do you think about that? Yeah, you know, what was really effective in 2016 was when he went to some of those, you know, mill towns where the mills were closed. Uh yeah, I love the idea of him going into the inner city and saying, you know, this is this is what I'm trying to fix, and this is what the other guys are not trying to fix. Yeah, I think that'd be very effective. So uh, we're going to run to a break here uh, in just a moment, uh, Frank. And when we return, we're going to talk about your your new book. And is the book out? It's called American Secession: The Looming threat of a national breakup is is the book out or coming out soon or what's what's the status it came out in january and boy did i have good timing you were prescient i mean in january let alone you had to be writing the book you know last year but but in january you were way ahead of the curve yeah i want to when we come back from this commercial break um i want to talk a little bit frank about what made you how were you able to predict something that that didn't occur to the rest of us if it's occurred at all until 
I think it's the riots and the attacks on the statues and Mount Rushmore and all that kind of thing that's kind of brought it to the fore. So we're going to go to uh, these commercial messages. When we come back, we'll have more with Frank Buckley and his book, American Secession. Dan Proft Show on the Salem Radio Network. Welcome back to the Dan Proft Show. We're talking with Frank Buckley, a professor at Scalia Law School and a columnist for the New York Post, talking about uh, Frank's book, American Secession, The Looming Threat of a National Breakup. Frank, how were you farsighted enough to realize that disunion all of a sudden is starting to become a possibility? Well, back then, you know, we're to, uh, the book came out in January. And, you know, back then people were talking about, beginning to talk about civil war. And I wrote the book to say, look, you know, you guys don't really get it. Um, you know, you think that if there's a breakup, that implies necessarily a civil war. And I, I, I wanted to say, no, it's not like that. Uh, you know, a lot of countries go through this, have gone through it. We went through it in 1776 and we had a war. But, you know, if, if we had a real secession movement right now, there wouldn't be a civil war. <clears throat> what there would be would be people sitting down and talking about how to do it. Right. And I I wrote kind of a scenario as to how it might happen. Um, One thing I said, for example, is if if a state wanted out, it's not as if there'd be an Abraham Lincoln in office, you know, sending in the troops. Right. You know, instead, there'd be, you know, bilateral discussions because there'd have to be. Right. I mean, a state doesn't have the unilateral right to exit because you have to talk about divisions of the national debt or federal property and all that. But, uh, you know, England has a secession movement. Great Britain has one in Scotland. Canada nearly went through it in Quebec. Okay. And that was all peaceful. Right. And, and yeah, it seems to, it seems to know, me, Frank, if I could just inter- interrupt for a moment, I mean, to have a civil war, it has to be territorial almost. Right. I mean, you have to have, you know, one group in, you know, the controlling part of a country and a different group controlling another part of the country. I mean, you know, the blue states that presumably would be thinking about seceding are kind of scattered around. You got Massachusetts, New York, Illinois, California. I mean, they're not going to muster troops, you know, and try to invade Nebraska. I mean, that's, you know, that's not the scenario, right? No, no, they, they don't do that. But, uh, you know, but <clears throat> there are secession movements in some of these states. <clears throat> Excuse me. And the scenario I envisaged was, gee, what would happen if Trump were reelected? Because, you know, I don't see the red states opting out of America for for a number of reasons. Okay? I mean, they're more patriotic, for one thing. Yeah, it's but the people, that, it's the people that hate America that are going to want to get out, right? Not the people that yeah, love exactly, America. Yeah, exactly. So, you know, what I ended up saying is, hey, guys, you know, if it happened this time, it'd be politically correct. You know? It would be, you know, the guys who read the New York Times or the Washington Post saying we've had enough, we want out. We don't want to be in the same country as Donald Trump. Um, that, that that would make it pick up. You see, I think here's the deal. I think the left thinks it owns the culture, and the culture is all important to them. I mean, that's where the cancel culture comes from, right? 
So they think they own the culture, and a re-election of Donald Trump would be a wake-up call. Hey, we don't own it. Okay, we don't own it, and and that's just so disgusting. I mean, uh, we we we're not gonna we're not gonna take it. That would be the scenario where it might happen. It, it you know it would be it would be the Californias, for example. I mean, California is really self-sufficient as a country. So here's the deal that a secessionist California movement would offer its voters. It would say, you secede, we secede, and we eliminate the taxes to support the U.S. military, and that would be enough to pay for a national health scheme in California. And that would appeal to a lot of people. So, you know, and, and by the way, and we're saying we can do it peacefully. Do you envision that a state like California would secede and become an independent country like Texas once was, for example, or or do you does your book foresee that blue states collectively, so you'd have California, Illinois, New York, uh, New Jersey, whatever? Well, it, the initiative would have to come from individual states, and and then the next stage would be, uh, you know, other states uh, taking it the state by its hand and, and joining along with them. I mean, you, you, you could have a, a New York, California uh, coalition. I mean, Pakistan was like that in 47. You don't have to have geographical contiguity. And, and uh, so I, any number of things are possible, including, of course, a breakup within each individual state, right? There are, you know, uh, Eastern Washington state is a different country from coastal Washington State, Seattle. Well, southern, southern Illinois uh, is a different country from Cook County, too. And yeah, right. Yeah, so downstate, um, upstate New York. So, the, you know, these sorts of things are possible. It's very possible to redraw maps like that. They, uh, you know, you can say, oh, how could that happen? Well, it did happen in 1862 when West Virginia was created. Yeah, that's right. We're talking with uh, Frank Buckley, author of uh, American Secession, The Looming Threat of a National Breakup. We'll be back with more after these minutes. This is The Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the Dan Proft Show. We're talking with Frank Buckley, professor at Scalia Law School and columnist for the New York Post, author of the book American Secession, The Looming Threat of a National Breakup. Frank, you had to be the first person to uh, openly write about the possibility of disunion. Well, you know, I lived through this. I moved to America from uh, Quebec about 30 years back. So I looked through that there and I saw, you know, there's, you know, at, at, there's one point where people say it could never happen, and then ten years later, you got a separatist government in power, in the, you know, in the state. So these things can happen really, really quickly. And and my other thought was, gee, it's, you know, if if we're not thinking about secession, it's because we have this horrible example of secession 1.0 in the Civil War. And so I wanted to say, well, that's, you know, that's not what would happen. It would be done peacefully, which is what would have happened in Canada or what would happen in Great Britain. Um, you know, and, and at that point, it's really a question about democracy. You know, if, if a state really wanted out, 
and democratically express the wish to do so, then our respect for democracy would apply. We'll give them a hearing. We'll talk. We'll talk about a, a breakup. And as I understand it, Frank, you're not yourself a secessionist, but you're taking, I think, a very clear-eyed look at uh, where things could be headed if the current divisions uh, persist. Yeah, I wasn't a secessionist when I was in Canada. I'm not one here. Um, the alternative to secession, when it's also possible, would be a greater respect for differences, right? And and so in the end, what I said is, look, rather than talk about secession, let's talk about what it is which, which bothers a lot of people, namely the idea that we have one set of rules uh, from Washington applied over the whole country. Uh, and that doesn't work terribly well, right? So we didn't have this problem back in the past, you know, when, when the federal footprint was smaller. We have it now in spades. Uh, the idea that we should have one law across the country for on matters like, you know, uh, abortion, for example, for New York City and Alabama, that just doesn't work. So part of our problem is Supreme Court driven. Part of our problem is just the overwhelming footprint of, of D.C. I'd like to see a reorganization which permitted greater diversity. I thought diversity was supposed to be a good thing. Well, you know, I think the point you're making here, Frank, and I think it's a great one, is that the real alternative to the kind of conflict that we're seeing, or at least in, in large part an alternative, is, is federalism. You know, yep. rather don't break up, but, but let's not make uh, New York uh, be ruled by Nebraska, and by the same time, let's not make Nebraska be ruled by New York. Yeah. And if it came to it, if everything were on the table, that's that's very well where we might end up. I mean, back in 1861, everything really was on the table as, as well. And the staunch unionists, Lincoln, Seward, they were prepared to compromise on slavery. All right. I mean, they were they, they were they, they were willing to make slavery constitutional across the entire uh, for any state that wanted it. Um you know, that's how desperate they were to keep the country together. I mean, that would have been positively immoral, okay, but that's what they were that's what they were willing to do. And it didn't work because for the Southerners it was a psychological issue, right? It was a question of want of respect, lack of respect. And that's kind of where we are now. The issues are far different. Nobody's talking about slavery or anything like it. Okay, what we're talking about is the fact that people just don't like each other here very much. And that's the sort of thing which more than anything would lead to secession. You know, it's really interesting because the conflict at the at the end of the day is primarily cultural, isn't it? I mean, it's not it's not like over over tariffs, you know, where you have some some regions that are exporters and some regions that are importers and. It's not really over things like tax policy, you know, where there's a you know, pretty wide difference of opinion. But nobody's nobody's, you know, setting fire to the streets on, you know, over over tax policy. I mean, it, it really is the softer cultural issues that at this point are, are so divisive. Yeah, they are. You know, uh, 40 years back or 30 years back, Irving Crystal said, hey, the culture wars are over. The left one. And what's happened in America in the last couple of years is the left has figured out maybe we didn't win after all if we've, uh, you know, the country's elected Donald Trump. 
because that's the source of the madness, right? The source of the madness is they can't accept the fact that a guy in the White House doesn't think they won the culture wars and is willing to push back. And that's what the stakes are at this particular point. Who gets to determine what the American culture is? And do we permit any diversity in that? Um, and I'm sorry, go ahead, go ahead. Well, that's why I said the election in November would be the big deal, right? If Trump won a second term, it would be by way of telling the left, no, you didn't win. Yeah, no, I think you're right about that. But there's something else going on here, too, isn't there? In other words, when it was said years ago that the left won the culture war, nobody at that time was talking about blowing up Mount Rushmore, right? Yeah. I mean, you know, the left you know, has not been content with whatever gains they've made in the culture. And, you know, they're insistent on going um, farther and farther to the point we're at now, Uh where it's, you know, tear down statues of George Washington. I mean, nobody ever thought the culture war was going to come to this, did we? Nope. Um, you know, we were talking about JFK a moment ago, and we are so far removed from JFK. I mean, at this point, we're far removed from Bill Clinton, right? I mean, yeah. the Democratic <laughs> Party of, of 20 years back would not have tolerated this lunacy, but um, they'll, they'll tolerate anything. We've got just one minute. We've got just one minute left, Frank. And I want to I want to close by following up on that point. I mean, is there an element in the Democratic Party that's not on the far left? I mean, I'm not seeing anybody uh, in the Democratic Party pushing back here. Yeah, you've got a minority which is legitimately crazy about about these kinds of issues, and then you've got a majority Democratic Party which doesn't care a hoot about any of that, but just wants power. Yeah, well, um, it's it's uh, it'll be really interesting to to see how this plays out over the over the coming uh, months and years. Uh, thank you. We've been talking with Frank Buckley of Scalia Law School, the New York Post, uh, author of American Secession: The Looming Threat of a National Breakup. We're going to go to a break, and we'll, we will be back with more on the Dan Prof Show. The more you'll know, this is the Dan Prof Show. Well, that was Frank Buckley of Scalia Law School in the New York Post, uh, and um, and he had the foresight uh, to to write a book about the possibility of secession here in the United States. And, um, you know, a month ago, even, I don't think I would have said that was a serious possibility. But now I I think we have to consider it. And, um, you know, we're seeing things that we never imagined that we could see. And and, and one of the things that for me uh, was kind of an eye opener, a friend of mine uh, who lives in a very wealthy suburb of the the Twin Cities uh, with, with what used to be considered to be a top notch public school system. He and his wife and a couple of kids were, were driving along in their car one day uh, six months ago or so, and um, and a quarter happened to fall uh, onto the to, onto the floor of the car, you know, in in the back seat, and they had a little a little girl, an elementary school kid, you know, eight, nine, ten years old, and uh, and the quarter landed face up on the floor, and somebody said, well, you know who that is? That's uh, that's George Washington. And the little girl who's like a you know third or fourth grader in a, in a in a public school in this very wealthy school district, 
uh, said, oh, yes, George Washington, he was a bad man. And her parents looked at her just stunned. What? What? Yeah, oh, yeah, we learned that in school. George Washington, he was a bad man. And, and you know, this, this, is, uh, this is the world we're living in. Uh, kids go to public schools, paid for by the taxpayers in, in American dollars, you know. Uh, and, um, and this is what they're taught. This is what they're taught. They're taught that America's a terrible country, uh, that George Washington, Thomas Jefferson, you name it, they were all bad people. And it's a, it's a tragedy that America was stolen from the Indians, stolen from the indigenous people. And nothing's ever happened in America except for slavery, notwithstanding that it was abolished uh, in 1865. Nevertheless, the entire story of America is the story of slavery. And that's the message of the New York Times 1619 Project. You know, they, they say the founding of America, no, it wasn't 1776. It wasn't when the Constitution was adopted. It was 1619 when the first load of slaves arrived from Africa. And uh, everything about American history uh, has to do with, uh, with that and nothing else can ever be discussed. Uh, everything has to be seen through what they call that lens, you know, the, the lens of, of race and, and, and slavery. And, and it's very difficult um, to, to have a country where half the citizens love the country and the other half the citizens uh, hate the country. And and it's kind of hard to know how do you vote uh, when when you've got two candidates and one of them hates America uh, and his supporters hate America and the people he will appoint if he wins hate America. Um, well, I know how I, I know how I'm going to vote. <laughs> it's not a hard question for me, but it's kind of amazing. And it's happened rather suddenly. I, actually, the termites have been eating for a long time in the public schools and other places. But but it, but still, it's come upon us rather suddenly that that's the situation that we find ourselves in. And I think it's become a serious question whether we want uh, to continue to be fellow citizens in what some of us believe is a great United States of America. We are going to go to a break and be right back after this. Far from the fake news, he's always got the real story. This is the Dan Proft Show. You are fake news. The world is a complicated place. You need someone to expose the political fakers, fixers, and takers and to cut through the mindless chatter and misdirection to help you make sense of it all. That person is Dan Proft. And this is the Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the Dan Proft Show. I'm John Hinderocker from Powerline, filling in for Dan tonight. And we are joined now by James Guartney, Professor of Economics and Policy Sciences at Florida State University. James, thanks for being on the program. My pleasure. Thank you. James, you wrote a really interesting piece in, um, in the um, American Institute for, for Economic Research on their website called The Economy After COVID-19. And this is something a lot of people have been thinking about. It seems like these shutdowns are dragging on just about forever. And there's been a lot of speculation about whether there are going to be some permanent changes uh, in how we work and how we travel and how we live uh, when this epidemic is over. Uh, tell us, give us your thoughts on that. Some of the points that you make in this uh, in this piece. Yeah, well, I think the you know this has been an event that has impacted so many different lives, and the people have. Uh, had to do things differently and make various kinds of adjustments and in the process of doing that you uh, both learn some things that work and maybe some things that don't work but I, I think one thing is really clear that the 
uh, economy is going to be different after this uh, uh, virus is over, even after we have a vaccine and people, at least from the standpoint, health standpoint, are not fearful about traveling and things of that sort. But uh, that's essentially, uh, uh, you know, at this point, everybody's focusing on the virus and when it might end and that sort of thing without giving too much of a thought at what the world's going to be like afterwards. And essentially, we outlined a number of uh, points in that uh, article that I think there's good reason to expect that there are going to be difference. Certainly, the issue of how we do business, uh, a lot of businesses now are more or less forced to do conference calls of various types and more people working at home and in the medical area that telemedicine has been uh, deregulated and there's more telemedicine going on and uh, a number of people are going to find that those things work quite well and want to stay with it. Some of them will find that they don't work so well for them and, and will want to go back to doing things uh, the way they did them prior to that. But in any case, I have no doubt about what there's going to be more people working at home uh, and there's going to be uh, more uh, conference kinds of things. And in my own area of education, uh, you know, we've gone, a number of colleges and universities have gone to uh, online uh, courses and we'll continue with that. Uh, I noticed Harvard just announced they're going to continue with it all the next academic year. That works well. I find about half of the students like the online classes and the flexibility they have, but about half of the students don't like them. And, uh, but in any case, there's probably going to be more online classes and education afterwards. But, yeah, that's uh, been in the news. Uh, the Harvard's announcement. In fact, President Trump criticized them for, for going online but still uh, collecting the, the full tuition amounts. Right, right. Well, there will be uh, those kinds of changes and uh, uh, that will sort of shake things out uh, differently. I guess I'm more concerned, frankly, in the monetary area and in the trade area about uh, changes that I think are being impacted by uh, this uh, virus. Of course, we've had big increases in government expenditures trying to protect people from essentially the damage that government imposed on them. In fact, we call this piece the, the, uh, the, the Great Suppression. You know, we talk about the Great Recession being 2008-2009 and essentially related to some misalignments, particularly in the housing markets and that sort of thing. And then the Great Depression we think of as the 1930s. But this is the Great Suppression. The government basically suppressed the economy. That is, James, uh, can I just interrupt for a second? That is so true. You know, politicians like to say, oh, the virus has had this terrible impact on the economy. No, that's actually not correct. It's the shutdowns that have had the terrible impact on the economy. Maybe they were necessary. Maybe they weren't. But it was the government yeah. action that we're seeing the consequences of. No doubt about that. And that's why I think the Great Suppression uh, is actually more descriptive. Uh, it's actually a term that was coined by uh, Gene Epstein of Barron's, a uh, longtime Barron's columnist. And uh, uh, I thought it was very descriptive. And we actually have a chapter in the textbook from which this piece was taken uh, where we use that particular term, the Great Suppression. But government attempted to, you know, uh, make uh, compensate people for the harm imposed on them. But they did it basically by borrowing and money creation. 
and uh, that means in the money creation area, the Fed is going to be walking in a really tight line. That essentially they've injected an enormous amount of money into the system, far more than, by the way, uh, John, than during 2008 and 2009. 2008, 2009, we had periods where the annual growth rate of the money supply went in a 13 to 15 percent range. But currently, the money supply is in the, uh, now increased at a 40 over the last 12 months. And of course, most of that has been the last four months at a 40% annual rate, and so far greater. And that's going to increase. I think it'll go to 60%. Because one of the things that has happened is the Fed has bought, purchased uh, all these bonds, treasury bonds, and the treasury is currently holding a bank balance of just under $2 trillion. The U.S. Treasury. Now, of course, those funds are going to be spent out here in terms of the supplementary unemployment compensation benefits and benefits to, uh, to business related to forgiveness of loans and other kinds of bailouts. They're going to be spent in the next two or three months. But that's going to add uh, probably another trillion, maybe as much as another trillion and a half increase in uh, the M1 money supply which has already gone from in February at $4 trillion and now it's $5.3 trillion. So uh, that's, uh, at the very least, without sort of getting into whether or not this is wise short-run policy on the part of the Fed, but it means that you're not going to be able to continue with this kind of large uh, growth rate and, and increase in the stock of money without it having an impact on, on price. So the Fed is going to have to shift back at some point to try and, and uh, control future inflation. And as they do so, it increases the likelihood that they'll make an error. Uh, yeah. I sometimes draw the analogy between if you're riding a bicycle, everything's going along smooth, that's pretty easy guiding it. But if you hit a rock, for example, and it veers you to the right, then you, you compensate, and there's a likelihood you may veer too far to the left. And and uh, so that's kind of the situation the Fed is trying to uh, minimize the impact of uh, the virus. And in the process of doing so, they're uh, in a very precautious situation and likely make it worse. And uh, the impact of monetary uh, changes take place over a uh, fairly lengthy period of time, probably 6 to 15 months. So it'll be into 2021 before we really begin to see uh, uh, the impact of this huge monetary expansion that we've had in the last four months. And it's, uh, all signs point to the fact that it's going to continue for at least another three or four months. Yeah, so I I, that, I, it's, yeah, it's really hard to know how that's going to play out. But I mean, conventionally, it certainly would be you know regarded as inflationary. We'll, we'll, we'll see. Uh, absolutely, particularly of those kinds of magnitudes. Right. Now, interest rates are low, and that means that it's uh, not as costly to borrow as otherwise would be the case. And it also means that what in economics uh, we call the velocity of money, but the turnover rate of, of money is, is lower, and therefore the impact of the monetary expansion has less impact. But that's because the interest rates, nominal interest rates are low. And if you start to have inflation, then nominal interest rates will rise. And people, you know, at a zero interest rate, you and I don't have much uh, incentive to sort of take funds out of our checking account and putting them into some kind of um, a money market or investment kind of account and things of that sort. Uh, when we're when interest rates are basically zero, but when you have interest rates that begin to rise, 
then people will uh, use those, get those money, those funds out of their checking accounts and other forms of money holdings, and that uh, you're going to at that point begin to see increases in spending and increases in in the general level of prices. So in any case, with uh, that's something that that is a potentially going to exert a major long-term impact on the economy. We could see something like the 1970s. Uh, take place, uh, that is to say, double-digit inflation uh, in the next, uh, you know, year, two years, three years, things of that sort, which would really be related back to the policies that we followed during this crisis. Well, let's hope not. I lived through the 1970s. I don't want those economic uh, consequences, nor do I want, I want those hairstyles. Uh, let's not not bring back the 70s. We're talking with <laughs> We're talking with James Courtney of uh, Florida State University. We are going to go to a break, James, and when we come back, I want to talk a little bit about some of the other things you cover in your article. Talk a little bit about some of the practical consequences of 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 what we've lived through here with COVID and how it may change people's attitudes toward uh, offices, uh, toward living in cities, uh, toward air travel and more. So we will be right back after these messages. The podcast of the show at danproffshow.com. We are back with uh, James Gwartney, Professor of Economics and Policy Sciences at Florida State University. And, and James, what I want to turn to now is just some of the kind of practical implications of what we've all lived through here for the last three months. You know, I, I spent my professional life working in offices, and, and that's really changed radically uh, in, in, in recent months. And a lot of people think that office work is never going to be the same. Talk, talk about that a little. What do you think? Well, I, I think that's true, and it's going to give people more flexibility. I, I would consider that actually to be one of the positive elements. And we've had moves gradually in that direction where more people were working a certain number of days at home and things of that sort. But one of the things that people have really learned how to use the the, the technology, what uh, probably most people think of as the Zoom technology, whether you can interact with other people and work together. And of course, it's easy through the internet if you're exchanging data or or manuscripts and things of that sort to, to pass them uh, along to the, the people who you're working with. And because people have learned and become more familiar and, and comfortable with the technology, I think you're increasingly going to have an acceleration of this movement toward more people working at home and more uh, conference calls rather than business trips that will have an impact on the airline industry. Uh, and uh, and I think in the healthcare industry is one where that is really going to be impacted by this technology. That for the first time, uh, both insurers as well as uh, uh, Medicare and Medicaid authorized uh, telemedicine and people uh, handling medical issues via phone. And that's, frankly, a big area where our government regulations had uh, led to higher health care prices than was really necessary, and there could be a positive impact in that area as well. So I think we're going to see some, although the changes in lifestyle related to uh, to travel and work, 
that are going to come out of this, and probably some surprises even over and above the ones that are kind of pretty obvious on the surface. Well, I'm all in favor of not having to wait in a doctor's uh, waiting room for 45 minutes to get in for an appointment, right? If you can do this uh, over the Internet or on the telephone, hallelujah. But, you know, the, the, exactly. the, revolution, the revolution in office work, if that really is coming, and I agree with you, I think it's just a question of degree, but it's definitely coming, that's going to have a big impact on cities. I mean, you know, if you look at a place like Manhattan, rent is phenomenally expensive. And then you have exactly. to, and, and the cost of living is, is huge. And so you got to pay people enough that they can afford to live in or near New York City. Same with other large metropolitan areas. And, and I think a lot of companies are going to say, well, wait a minute, time out. Uh, why are we spending all this money for the privilege of being in Manhattan? You know, maybe we don't have to do that. Well, in, in dealing with the traffic, uh, if you're living outside of Manhattan and driving in and all those kinds of things, uh, it's going to give people more flexibility. You know, uh, uh, some of us may think about, uh, uh, hey, we might be able to live in the mountains for a few days, or at least in the suburbs, you know, a lot of the time, because you can, if you're working online or if you're working uh, with people online, you can do it as well any place uh, in the world, really. So I think it's going to add to flexibility and lead to to uh, lifestyle changes, but it, it also is going to exert an impact on cities. You know, there has been a gradual movement sort of back, particularly younger people, back into a number of inner, inner cities like New York and Chicago and, and uh, uh, other cities of, of that size. And I think we're going to see that reverse now. It's actually kind of stagnated in the last few years, but I expect that it, it will reverse as more people perceive that they have flexibility where, hey, maybe I'll only go into the office uh, one or two times a month, and in which case uh, you can live out quite a ways and things of that sort. So, uh, Well, there's a couple of things going on too, James. One is the increased flexibility via the Internet and Zoom meetings, that kind of thing, but the other is health. One of the things we've yeah. seen with the COVID epidemic is population density is not your friend. And uh, I, I think a lot of people are thinking, well, wait a minute. Uh, do I really want to live in uh, some major metropolitan area jammed together and riding on subways? Or if I could just as well live in, I don't know, Sioux Falls, uh, maybe I should try that. Yeah, yeah, I think that's absolutely correct. Well, it'll also be interesting to see what it has in in the trade area. Uh, international trade. I, it does seem to me that uh, there is an increased view that, hey, we ought to bring uh, all kinds of production activities back to the United States, things of that sort. But the reason why they left the United States uh, is because of the fact that costs were lower. And, and people, particularly political people and media people, are confused with regard to this. You cannot reduce your imports without simultaneously reducing your exports. So it's not just so simple to say, hey, if we uh, uh, put up these various kinds of trade uh, restrictions and, and we import less from China and let, import less from a lot of other people, then it means that uh, we're going to uh, uh, be better off as a result of it. And you see the jobs. But what you don't see is if foreigners are selling less to us, they're also buying less with us. They don't have the where, wherewith to do it. So to a degree, what trade restrictions do is they don't either increase or decrease employment. What they do is shuffle employment. And we have more employment with trade restrictions that is 
basically things that were a high cost producer of, of, of producing when we put up the trade restrictions and less of our employment is in areas when we, where we are a low cost producer and that makes us worse off. So I'm, I'm concerned about that as well. And, and I think there, there has been a, a shift politically and, and certainly in the media and, it is an area where there's actually, for a long period of time, been a, a, a great deal of economic illiteracy, uh, and that's likely to work against us. So, so it's interesting, John, that some of these changes, I think, are going to be quite favorable, and some of them are, are likely to be unfavorable. Uh, and it'll be interesting to see uh, uh, how all this sort of shakes out as uh, we move to life after the pandemic. We've got about a minute and a half, a little bit more than that, uh, left in this segment, James. And I want to ask you a little bit about travel. Uh, one thing that's really been striking to me uh, is is people aren't going anywhere. I mean, uh, Delta Airlines, for example, has cut their flights by about 90% and in, in instituted some kind of strict re- re- you know, requirements for, for air travel. Um, people have canceled international travel all over the world. Um, is this is this totally temporary? Is it going to get back to normal in a few months, or or do you think that our ability to travel around the world and around the country is permanently going to be affected? Well, at this point, it's impacted because people are fearful to uh, uh, travel in an airplane as a result of, of concern about the virus. And hopefully, in a not too distant future, we'll get a vaccine, and that will cut down. But I think a lot of the travel that uh, people did prior to the pandemic, they're not going to go back to traveling as much. And that I expect that there will be a permanent reduction uh, in air travel. Uh, yeah, but I spent, it, I spent it, my life as a business traveler, James. And yeah, I think I'll, exactly. some of that, some of that I would still do, but some of that I think I'd probably do via Zoom, you know, if I were doing yes, that. Yes, exactly. That's exactly what's uh, what's going to happen, and particularly when more and more people now are familiar with the technology, so it's easier to substitute various kinds of, of communication technology for for travel. Um, so, James, we're bumping I, up against think- the against the break here, so I got I've got to sign off. But thank you very much for being on the show. We've been talking with James Gwartney, and we'll be right back after this. You're listening to The Dan Proft Show on the Salem Radio Network. Welcome back to The Dan Proft Show. I'm John Hinderocker from Powerline filling in for Dan tonight. And we are joined now by Joy Pullman, executive editor of The Federalist, uh, and Joy is the author of an article at The Federalist uh, titled, Trump Should Yank Federal Funds from Every School That Refuses to Open This Fall. Joy, let's just start at square one here. I don't get it. I mean, why on earth are schools not wanting to open in the fall? Well, I think there, I mean, of course, there's a plethora of reasons. I mean, people are scared, first of all. You know, second of all, um, I mean, I believe that the education system, a lot of people in it, especially its leaders, think that they are entitled to special privileges um, that other people don't get in their employment. So, for example, the, you know, the ability to demand way preferential employment options, vacations, pay, retirement funds. I mean, 
they're the reason <laughs> that, I mean, a number of states are just about to go into bankruptcy is oversized teacher pensions, you know, that they can't afford but still have been getting. Um, and so, you know, so so that there's a bit of that entitlement going into the idea that, you know, adults, even those who might be at risk, shouldn't have to do a job that possibly puts them at risk, even though all kinds of other people are doing that, like grocery store workers, um, you know, people at gas stations, truckers. You know, well, yeah, plenty of other look, people have. Yeah, welcome, to, welcome, welcome to the world, folks. I mean, the only person I know of who's literally sitting in his basement, you know, is Joe Biden. I mean, the rest of us, <laughs> you know, we have to have some kind of a life. Uh, we have jobs. We go out. I mean, I t- this is just madness to me. Well, I mean, the education system really always ought to put the interest of kids before the kids before the interest of adults, and it very rarely actually does so. So our whole education system is really restructured to be at the mercy of special interests rather than kids and parents and families and taxpayers. And so that's basically why we're seeing, you know, so many schools push against doing what's best for the kids and best for the nation uh, this fall. Well, I would think at a minimum, Joy, if the schools are not going to provide full services, they shouldn't get full funding. Right. I mean, if they're well, not going to open. That's the other thing. So, I mean, it, but that's the other thing. I mean, a lot of schools have shown themselves willing to reopen for non-education activities. So, for example, in my town and all across the country, you know, schools all shut down um, this year, but they opened up to get, you know, for the same numbers of people to be filing through their doors to be getting taxpayer paid food, as well as in some cases, child care. You know, so I'm sitting here as a parent thinking, wait, you know, I believe the reason my kids go to school uh, is to be educated not to be fed and not to be babysat. You know, that's a parental responsibility, not a taxpayer responsibility. And so, but what schools prioritize is exactly the reason that they, you know, the the opposite of the reason for their existence. Schools exist to educate kids. And if they're not doing that, they shouldn't be getting money to educate kids. Yeah. And of course, the the teacher unions, which are one of the principal forces for evil in our in our world, are are part of the problem here. But one one basic fact that we ought to get out here, Joy, is that, I mean, COVID-19 is is hazardous if you're elderly. I mean, in my state, Minnesota, the median age of death attributed to COVID-19 is 83 years old, and mm-hmm. about 80% of the deaths have been in nursing homes and assisted living facilities, right? So, but, mm-hmm. but it's not in the elementary schools or the high schools. I mean, they did a study in the UK that found that ages 0 to 15, and I'm sure they could have gone to 18 and got the same result, a kid is more likely to be struck by lightning uh, than than to die from COVID-19. I mean, this is not about the children's health. No. I mean, and, and we also know from the same data, you know, from plenty of data that kids have many more kids, that the death rate for children from the seasonal flu is much higher than it is from COVID-19. I mean, little children, zero to 18, are literally the least at-risk group from this virus. You know, so, and but everyone's acting like the opposite is the case. Like they are, you know, the most at risk, the ones who most need to be locked down. But I mean, that of course speaks to the approach that our our, our elected and unelected uh, overlords have been taking to this pandemic, one that has broken with all of historical practice. Instead of protecting the people who are at risk, the people, you know, who have a disease, quarantining the, you know, people who are actually sick or, again, at a high risk, instead we're quarantining everybody. And that's just not a sustainable way to live. We can't do it. For, <laughs> we can't do it for coronavirus. You know, it costs us way more than we can afford to spend in trying to basically tap, again, future generations to pay for all the expenses we racked up doing this. So we can't afford doing it for a coronavirus and we can't afford doing it ever again. So we have to find out different and better ways 
that don't include, you know, telling everybody to hide in their basements indefinitely over every single sickness that happens to us. It seems like there's a fair number of people in our world who believe that they're entitled to get paid and whether they do any work is optional, right? The pay is certain, but the work is optional. Uh, and, and there are some teachers and administrators that seem to be in that category. We got just 20 seconds, Joy. Any comment on that? I think that's, you know, that's a growing sort of sense <laughs> among people everywhere. And I don't know really where it's coming from besides the welfare state teaching us that, you know, again, you know, what the opposite of what the Bible says, he who doesn't work shouldn't eat. <laughs> we need more we're of that. Gonna, working right, to we're going to run to a break and come back right after these messages with Joy Pullman. And it was you. Grab a good seat and sharpen your pencils. Class is in session with Professor Dan Proft and the Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the Dan Proft Show. We are talking with Joy Pullman, executive editor of The Federalist, about her piece in The Federalist titled Trump should yank federal funds from every school that refuses to open this fall. I would say joy at a minimum. I'd like to see the states and localities yank the funding from schools that don't want to open uh, as well. Um, you know, there's well, one I mean, really online education is a bunch cheaper than in-person education, right? You can have basically right. one person for each grade giving the lectures, you know, for the entire state's first graders say, and then you just need a hand, you know, a certain number of aides to kind of check up on the kids' homework and stuff. Yeah. So and why I pay think, for, you know, why pay for premium when you're getting freemium? Right. Exactly. And, and I think one point that's really important to make here, Joy, is that um, doing it online obviously puts a much bigger burden on the parents, right? The kids are not in school. They're at home. They're, they're allegedly tuning in on a laptop. Maybe they are. Maybe they aren't. But clearly a much bigger burden on, on parents. And my impression is that um, online learning, such as we had last spring, might work reasonably well if you've got two parents, they're educated, they're involved, you know, uh, have high standards. Yeah, those kids probably will will keep up. But the kids who won't keep up, the kids who will fall behind are the kids who don't have two parents, who don't have educated parents, who don't have parents that are strongly involved in their in their in their education. And I think we've seen that through experience. Right. I mean, just like public schools, the, the evidence and, and experience that we have on online learning suggests um, that it's subpar according to compared to the best that could be offered to kids. But, you know, families where, as everyone knows from, again, from their experience, families where you have two married parents, you know, who have uh, have been decently educated themselves, they know where to go to get good books. They can have better conversations with their kids. Their kids can absorb difficulties and, you know, uh, disruptions, you know, that are genuine. It's a genuine difficulty, a genuine disruption loss to kids um, to be stuck in online schooling rather than good in-person schooling. Um, But the kids can absorb it, you know, when they have more support from their families um, in, in a better situation like that. The kids who don't have as much support from their families, whose families have less money, you know, more requirement to work, more pressure on them in that term, as well as less social capital in the form of married parents or, you know, extended family that's nearby them to help and pitch in. You know, those are always the people who are the most hurt by every kind of disruption and online schooling is no exception. You know, I did a webinar with uh, Christy Nolan, the governor of uh, South Dakota, 
day before mm. yesterday, and we talked about this. And South Dakota schools are opening, period. There's none of this nonsense going on there. Yeah. And one She's of the things, great. I want her to oh, run for president. <laughs> well, I asked her about that, actually. Please, she I want said, to vote for her. I'll vote for her as well. She said, no way. She said, I spent eight mm-hmm. years in Washington. I'm glad to be back in <laughs> South Dakota. But one of the things she said, when we talked about this, she said, you know, when we we went to online schooling in the spring, 20% of the students we never had contact with. They they never logged in. They yep, never yep. D- did a homework assignment. They, you know, they had, they had zero contact once the schools yep. went online. Well, you know, though, who those 20% were, right? They're, the, they're precisely the kids who most who need, need the most attention? Yeah, yeah, who most need what the schools can offer? It's not the two parent families with the educated parents. You know, it's it, so. So I think that's just a very practical, empirical reality that if we don't operate the schools, it's going to be the less privileged kids that are hurt the most. Oh, again, that's always the case with every bad thing that could happen to someone. It always hits deprived people harder. And my husband is actually a school teacher, and that happened to him. He, was, I mean, he wanted to stay in his class and teach his kids. He has been working with these kids all year, you know, and a number of them have special learning situations that, you know, they had been working through and were just reaching the crest of surmounting so many personal and educational obstacles. And then, you know, he was forced to basically abandon them. Our governor, you know, yanked him out of his classroom, banned him from being with those kids. And it was just, I mean, his heart was breaking to call them, to email them, to text their parents and get nothing back from them, you know, week after week after week. You know, that situation is just heartbreaking. And we really need to pay attention to those kids because they, I mean, they, they deserve to have us not leave them out in the cold like that ever again. There's a lot of craziness going on around this whole situation of what to do with the schools, Joy. And one of the things that you mentioned in your column in, in The Federalist is that in Washington State, the office of the superintendent of schools announced that they will prioritize black students over white students in getting them back into the classrooms. Now, I guess. Uh, yeah. I, I guess. <laughs> I mean, that, let's just call that what it is. It's straight up racism, right? <laughs> yeah. I mean, it, assuming that because someone is one color of skin versus another, that they automatically have more education deficits. That's really offensive. And well, false, it is. It, 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 it's 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 false. It's offensive. It's also illegal. I mean, I don't. Right. You know, I think All of those the, <laughs> the Washington State Superintendent of Schools might want to take a refresher course in the uh, Constitution and take a look at particular at the Fourteenth Amendment. I don't. I don't think that's going to fly. But it 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 goes to show, though. It tells us something, doesn't it, about the mentality of the people that are running these public schools? Yes, and it. I mean, you know, yeah. I mean, that one is. I mean, it's not. I wish I could say that's shocking, but at this point, you know, with what we've all what we've all been through for the past couple of months, it's not. But it's really heartbreaking because, again, you know, um, one of the founding creeds of America is, like you said, the absolute equality of all people under God, you know, under our law. Um, and and we can uh, and we know from social science research that the way to increase our unity is to focus on what unites us and what what not what divides us. And obviously, you know, racial difference are something that is that is no basis for making a distinction among what kind of kids should get education <laughs> or how early they should get it or, or what else. You know, the, all kids should be treated equal, just like all American citizens should be treated equal. And, yeah, I mean, I, I would expect some parents in Washington state to sue. But it is really telling that that sort of thing just can come from a massive, you know, a state education agency in charge of uh, you know, uh, uh, that oversees the taxpayer funds of uh, millions of dollars. And, you know, many, many children uh, thinks that that is an acceptable 
the uh, action to take. Joy, we've got just over 30 seconds before we got to go to a hard break. Let me ask you one more question. That is, with a lot of parents looking around and saying, hey, we're basically homeschooling right now, is, is this whole situation potentially going to lead to an increase in, in homeschooling? I am. He- I mean, it's hard to say right now, but I am hearing from a bunch of different states, homeschool organizations saying that all of their inquiries have shot through the roof. Um, in North Carolina, for example, the state homeschooling registry, you have to register with the state there to homeschool. It crashed because so many people were trying to access it. Um, and if that, you know, starts to happen, then it really, you know, the public school system has to be careful because they're undermining themselves by pushing people into education alternatives, um, you know, and, and giving them a, a taste of freedom. They're going to start coming for the education dollars that belong to their kids next. And that's not going to be what public schools want. All right, Joy Pullman, thank you very much for being with us. We'll be right back. The more you listen, the more you'll know. This is The Dan Proft Show. Well, we've had a couple of guests here talking about the fallout from the COVID-19 epidemic and really more so from the, the shutdowns that have uh, followed on the, uh, on the epidemic and changes that we're seeing and are likely to see in the future. And, um, you know, speaking for myself, one phrase I hate is the new normal. Uh, I hate it uh, when I hear someone say, well, this is the new normal. All of us are going to wear masks wherever we go or the new normal is, you know, uh, you can't stand at the bar. You know, you have to sit at a table because you're you're too close to somebody in the bar or, you know, uh, fewer seats on airplanes or you name it. Um, I like the old normal. And I don't, I don't want to hear about, I don't want to hear about a new normal. Now, there's some ways where, you know, it's probably okay. In other words, if, if fewer people are working in offices and more people are working remotely or at least more often working remotely, yeah, that's probably okay. And if, and if some people decide that it's not particularly healthy or desirable to be living in uh, Manhattan or, or Queens or, or Cook County or San Francisco or whatever, and, and, uh, we get a little more, uh, Population dispersion around the country, people moving to smaller towns, smaller cities, more rural areas. Hey, that's fine with me, too. You know, if those kinds of changes uh, uh, evolve as a result of um, of the epidemic and the response to the epidemic, um, that is just fine. Uh, but it, but in very basic ways, it seems to me that our government's role should be getting things back to normal. You know, not telling us, uh, oh, sorry about it, about all this, but it's the new normal. You know, I'm old enough to remember the uh, late 1970s when the country was in terrible shape. We had, what, 15% inflation and 12% unemployment and, you know, the prime rate is, you know, astronomical and the economy is in the toilet. And all the powers that be were saying, hey, this is the new normal. Everybody should just get used to it. Uh, This is the way life is going to be from now on. Plan on, you know, high unemployment, no economic growth, high inflation, Younger people being poorer than their parents, you know, that's the new normal. That's what everybody was telling us. And Ronald Reagan came along in 1980 and said, wait a minute, I don't accept that. I don't accept that America has to be poor. I don't accept that America has to decline. I don't accept that that's the new normal. If we follow the right policies, we can be prosperous again. We can grow again. We can have opportunity again. 
and that message resonated with voters and they, they thought, well, let's, you know, at least this guy thinks we've got a chance, you know, let's, let's vote for him and see what happens. And of course the rest is history. Uh, no more stagflation, no more 12% unemployment, no more 15% inflation. And we've seen decades of, of, uh, of, of basically prosperous times ever since. And so uh, whenever I hear somebody talk about the new normal, I think back to the late 1970s and I say to myself, uh, no, no, that's not what I want. I want the old normal back again. And part of that is uh, Donald Trump is doing exactly the right thing in saying, look, we've had enough shutdowns. Schools get back, uh, reopen. Uh, businesses, let's get back to business. Let's get America moving again. Fake news. He's always got the real story. This is the Dan Proft Show. You are fake news. The world is a complicated place. You need someone to expose the political fakers, fixers, and takers, and to cut through the mindless chatter and misdirection to help you make sense of it all. That person is Dan Proft. And this is the Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the Dan Proft Show. I'm John Hinderocker from Powerline, filling in for Dan tonight. And we are joined now by Quinn Hillier, commentary writer for the Washington Examiner. Quinn, thanks for being on the program. Thanks for having me, John. Quinn, uh, the U.S. Supreme Court uh, recently decided the uh, Little Little Sisters of the Poor uh, case, and it was billed as essentially a victory for religious uh, liberty. Uh, and I think, I think, on balance, rightly. But you've got a. Of explaining what that case was all about, and what the possible outcomes were, and and how the justices lined up, and what the significance of it all really is. So, if you would, let's just jump in and and start walking us through your analysis of that case. Okay. Well, the the, the short version is it was not as big a win for the little sisters and for uh, conscience rights and for free exercise of religion and most seem to think uh, look they could have lost and and not being been afforded any conscious conscience protections at all which means that in a lot of ways it would have put them out of out of operation so that did not happen that's good but option oh, and by two, the by the way say Quinn I'm sorry to interrupt but you know one thing we should just say is what was at stake here you know, what was it that the, that, that the little sisters didn't want to do that some people wanted to force them to do? Okay. Well, the little sisters who, of course, run, um, you know, they're known for their charitable endeavors, especially running homes for the elderly uh, of low means, of, of, of little financial means. And they do a wonderful job caring for poor elderly people. Uh, they, there was an Obama era, uh, regulation that would have said that the insurance that they provided their workers would have to provide for, uh, contraception or abortifacient, uh, abortion inducing drugs. And, of course, the little sisters, that goes completely against their religion. So they said, we're religious. We should not have to pay for something we think of as a terrible sin. 
uh, as, as an intrinsically evil act. And the Obama administration uh, said, well, now that we've revised the regulation, all that we want you to do is certify that uh, that you are making a conscience exception and therefore the insurance company will pay for the abortion or contraception mandate itself. And the little sister said, but that's still asking us to participate in it and we're still providing the insurance and no matter who you say is paying for it, uh, we are, you're still asking us to participate, uh, and it's still insurance that we're providing. So we don't, we don't want to do that. That would make us participate in intrinsic evil. And so they brought it to court. And in the meantime, the Trump administration changed the rule so that the little sisters would no longer have to do the certification that they didn't want to do. And this time, uh, some states took the took the administration and the sisters to court, saying that that you can't do this. You can't basically you can't undo what the Obama administration has done. So that's that's what reached the court, and the options were four. One the sisters could lose and they would either have to go out of, out of business in effect, or they would have to uh, provide the certification. Thank goodness that didn't happen. Option two, the next least bad option was what actually happened, which was that a majority of the court ruled that the Trump administration was, uh, did have the discretion to exempt the sisters from the certification, which means for all intents and purposes for now, the little sisters win. The problem with that is that can be reversed by any new administration because it didn't say the, that the administration is required to give the exemption to the little sisters. It just says it is allowed to do so. So the next time an administration comes in that disagrees, they can change the rule again, and the sisters are back uh, behind the eight ball. And as a matter of fact, Joe Biden said just yesterday that if he becomes president, he's going to get rid of this exemption that the Trump administration gave. So that means the sisters win for now, but only as long as they have a conservative White House. That's a problem because... You know, Trump could lose. And if Trump loses, if Biden wins, the little sisters are are out of luck. Then you get to what I thought would be the actual best possible outcome, but nobody was really considering it. And that is not just to require the exemption for the sisters, which they didn't get. They only got an allowance, not a requirement. But not only to say that that they would absolutely under something called the Religious Freedom Restoration Act, they would absolutely have the right under that statutory law to be exempt. I wrote the better reading would be that under the First Amendment to the U.S. Constitution, they have the right to the exemption 
and that therefore it's a constitutional right that cannot be taken away from them. That's what I would have liked to have seen happen. Clearly, it did not. You know, uh, Quinn, let's just take a minute here to uh, explain the Religious Freedom Restoration Act. I don't want to go too deep into the weeds, but you kind of have to understand what that is and how it came about to to, to see the implications of, of this decision. Well, what happened was way back in 1989 and 90, uh, uh, the Supreme Court faced a case involving a an exemption for a religious organization from a government mandate. And, uh, well, actually, in this case, it was an exemption for uh, an Indian tribe or members thereof to do a ceremony uh, that involved a hallucinogenic drug. And writing for the court, Justice Scalia uh, ruled that there is no broad-based exemption uh, from generally applicable laws for religious organizations. And therefore, uh, uh, that's what set up the situation where the Little Sisters were in trouble in the first place. And the Religious Freedom Restoration Act was an act of Congress that was sort of an end run around that, uh, that decision by Justice Scalia. And it said, okay, even if you don't say the First Amendment gives you this broad exemption, statutorily, just by law, meaning something that can be passed by Congress but can also be changed by Congress, it's not a constitutional right, that by law you can – uh, you can uh, recognize this right for religious organizations to be exempt from laws that that contradict their religious teachings. So that's what the Religious Freedom Restoration Act is. It's a pretty strong act, but it doesn't have the same force that a constitutional amendment would. So, so in this particular decision, the Little Sisters case, the Supreme Court said that under the Religious Freedom Restoration Act, uh, the Trump administration could give the Little Sisters an exemption, but they wouldn't have to, and and Joe Biden wouldn't have to. Is that the bottom line? Correct. That is the bottom line. So right now they have the exemption, and even then, that can be challenged in court again under yet a different part of uh, the regulatory apparatus. So they're going to have to go back to court already to defend this exemption that they have been given. And not only that, but if a new administration comes in, the exemption itself could be taken away uh, regardless of what happens with the subsequent court file. Quinn, so this we, is, have, we have to run to a break here, Quinn. But when we come back, uh, I want to ask you some questions more generally about this uh, this term in the U.S. Supreme Court and the disappointment that a lot of conservatives uh, feel about it. So uh, we'll be right back after these messages. and sharpen your pencils. Class is in session with Professor Dan Proft and the Dan Proft Show. 
Welcome back to the Dan Proft Show. We are back with uh, Quinn Hillier, commentary writer for the Washington Examiner. Quinn, before the break, we were talking about the Little Sisters of the Poor case and your analysis of it, that it's somewhat disappointing. It was it was sort of a temporary victory uh, for the Little Sisters, but not a very broad reading of the Religious Freedom Restoration Act and, and not a decision predicated on the First Amendment um, uh, freedom of religious exercise uh, uh, principles. And, and I want to move on now and ask you a little bit more broadly. A lot of conservatives, you know, we, we fought a big battle over Brett Kavanaugh's nomination. We fight battles over any conservative nomination. We ostensibly have now got five conservatives on the Supreme Court, uh, but it doesn't feel like it. Uh, a lot of conservatives have been disappointed with the current term. What, what, do you, what do you make of that? Well, they're right to be disappointed. Look, uh, judging a... Uh, court is should not be done just by looking at the policy outcomes but in a lot of cases the policy outcomes that conservatives desire also happen to coincide with what conservatives believe is a correct approach to reading the constitution and in case after case after case conservatives have been losing uh in terms of the readings of the cases involved and in terms of the policy outcomes. And so uh, so for shorthand, you just refer to the policy outcomes, and the policy outcomes have been that conservatives, either in decisions by the Supreme Court or in, in their choices of what cases to hear at all, in other words, their rejection of appeals, so they don't even give a chance for the appeal. Conservatives have lost on abortion. They have lost on guns. They have lost on immigration. They have lost on uh, on environmental regulation. And even their wins, like the Little Sisters of the Poor, are written in such a way that they're only temporary wins that can easily be overturned. And so again and again and again, we look up as conservatives and say, look, not only do we not like these policy outcomes, but uh, but the supposedly conservative justices, at least one every time, seems to abandon us on how you read the laws and the Constitution in the first place. And it's tremendously, tremendously frustrating. So, and one thing that happens, as you say there, Quinn, is it's not always the same guy. You know, it's not always the same justice. But, you know, it's like the conservative justices are individualist, individualistic and sometimes quirky. On, on the politicized cases, you can always count on the liberal justices to vote as a block. Everybody knows how those four are going to vote. And then we all hold our breath. Wondering if, uh, you know, John Roberts, the chief justice, is going to d- decide to play the role of the swing judge and swing the other way. Or if maybe somebody like Gorsuch is going to all of a sudden come up with kind of a flaky. And Quinn, as I understand it, the Supreme Court just recently um, ruled that half of the state of Oklahoma is Indian territory, which, you know, casting grave doubt on, on uh, among other things, a lot of past criminal convictions, but also just the ability of the state of Oklahoma to govern its uh Itself, and and that was, I believe, a quirky reading by uh, Justice Gorsuch, and 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 so well, it, actually, let me let me interrupt there because there, technically, Gorsuch might have been right, and it was 
in terms of a in terms of practicality, it's a total mess. But in terms of the actual reading of the law, this is one of those cases where the the law has been allowed to slide in such a way that uh, that nobody was actually abiding by it. And so Gorsuch is saying, well, we actually do have to abide by it, but that opens a Pandora's box of practical problems. So, so what do you attribute this to, Quinn? I mean, there have been the whole series of, of uh, unsatisfying uh, decisions here out of a Supreme Court that ostensibly has a, a conservative majority. What, what do you think is the root of the problem? Well, the, root, the first root of the problem is that John Roberts is a politician in robes. And our Chief Justice, you know, he's, his political leanings seem to be vaguely right of center, but he's more interested, it appears, in maintaining what he considers to be the institutional uh, acceptability of the courts in terms of how sort of the broadly moderate elites in Washington would think of as institutionally acceptable. And so what he's doing is rather than starting with the actual words of the law, he seems to try to bend it to find the 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 result that will disrupt the current state of affairs the least. And no matter which way he goes, it's always in a way, no matter what the law says, that he seems to think will cause the least resistance and therefore cause the least uh, political blowback for the court. Well, that's not judging. That's politicking by another name. It's moderate politicking, but it's still politicking. Uh, Chief Justice Roberts, of course, is the the senior officer of the entire uh, U.S. federal court system. And he takes that responsibility, I think, very, very seriously. And and, and to your point, Quinn, I think you're right that it it weighs very heavily with him uh, what the image of the federal courts will be with the public, you know, what the status and the stature of the Supreme Court and all the, the whole federal court system will be. And I, I think it I think it makes him very risk averse it makes him very risk averse but the job of the justice of the supreme court is not to worry about the image if you actually follow the law and the laws and the constitution in a principled way the image will take care of itself but he seems to want to figure out what immediate results will keep the image least sullied and therefore Okay, if that's the result I want to get, how do I get there in the most minimalist way possible? Well, that's not judging. That's that's image making, and that's not what his job is. I think earlier earlier today, President Trump actually made a comment about, well, we got to keep nominating more conservative judges, <laughs> and I guess you can only laugh. I mean, that's all you can do. Uh, but uh, it's 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 easy to understand why so many conservatives. Uh, are disappointed in this this very important area. We've got just a little under a minute, uh, Quinn. Final thoughts here? Well, final thoughts are, look, uh, one thing about conservative justices is that the different strains of conservatism, the number of different legitimate results you can reach by using conservative methods. And 
the liberals don't do that usually. They usually uh, vote, not always, but usually vote in lockstep. It is actually to the conservatives' credit that they at least think for themselves. The problem is that sometimes when they think for themselves, they go off on tangents that most conservatives would not be happy with or are not happy with. Quinn Hillier, thank you very much uh, for being with us. We're going to run to a break and be back after these messages. Thank you so much, John. Dan Proft Show on the Salem Radio Network. Welcome back to the Dan Proft Show. We are joined now by John Lott, Jr., president of the Crime Prevention Research Center and the author of The War on Guns and More Guns, Less Crime. John, welcome to the program. Good to talk to you, John. John, I want to ask you about a column that you had recently at Real Clear Politics, uh, and the title of it is Selective Media Reporting Further Fuels Our Racial Divide. And this is something that I, that I think all of us have seen. I've certainly seen it. I'm sure our listeners have. It's unbelievable how um, our press seems to go out of its way to pour fuel on the fire of the current uh, you know, racial conflicts that are going on. Right. Well, I think the way the media selectively reports information really creates a lot of anger. Uh, And unfortunately, I think it helps create riots and other things that are there. So it really endangers people's lives. Um, You know, uh, we've done a lot of research on police shootings, for example. And uh, what you find is that when uh, a white officer shoots a black suspect, um, that's much more likely to get national news coverage. About 38% of the cases uh, get national news coverage in that case. But when uh, a black officer uh, will shoot a black, only about 9% of those stories will get uh, some type of national news coverage, and usually much less national news coverage than the others. And if a black officer shoots a white, uh, you don't find any national news coverage for those cases where they actually mention the race of the officer and the suspect who is being shot. And that, I think, creates the impression that it's whites shooting blacks. Um, You know, you see all sorts of things. Like uh, just this last weekend, people who watch cable news shows probably saw this gruesome picture of this uh, car driver who plowed into uh, Black Lives Matter protesters in Seattle and saw the bodies flying through the air like rag dolls. Um, But you'll search pretty much in vain to go and find information on the race of the driver or uh, the race of the people who were were, uh, hit. Uh, You'll find discussions on NPR, for example, about how uh, whites are using cars to go and attack blacks uh, in the article where they're talking about that, leaving people with the impression that it was a white driver who ran into black Black Lives Matter protesters. In fact, 
the driver of that car was black and the people that he hit were white. Uh, you're much more likely to find uh, information on the race of the driver and the victims in foreign media outlets than you're going to find in, uh, in U.S. outlets. Yeah, that's really true. Sometimes you have to read British newspapers to find out what's going on in the United States. You know, there's a whole right. narrative in play here, obviously, John, you know, and, and there's somebody who wants Americans to believe that there's this epidemic of of white police officers just needlessly slaughtering black um, suspects. And right. and the statistics don't bear that out at all. And, and yet no. our reporters, I, I don't know if they're ignorant of the facts or if they just don't care and are promoting the narrative for for political purposes. What What do you think? Well, I mean, in some sense, it doesn't really matter what their motivations are. The The issue is, uh, is it giving people an accurate picture of what's going on? And is it creating this kind of anger that may be unnecessary if, in fact, the way that they cover these stories doesn't accurately reflect the rates that these things are occurring? In our research that we've done, um, we find that a black officer is, statistically the same as likely to go and shoot a black suspect as a white police officer is. Um, you know, this is after accounting for whether the suspect was armed, whether they're involved in the commission of a crime, where they committed a crime, what type of crime that they were committing, uh, you know, the uh, what, where the crime occurred, lots of different factors like that, time of day. And, uh, uh, you know, the number of police officers present when uh, the shooting occurred, uh, whether they had body cams, cameras, and lots of different factors. Um, but, you know, people won't know that by listening to the news. And it's not just with regard to these police shootings, for example. Uh, there's a similar media narrative with regard to mass public shooters, where uh, the media will constantly be talking about how these shooters are overwhelmingly white, um, and they'll bring in other aspects, political aspects of these. What you find... Uh, hey, John, let's last... say, John, we're coming up against a hard break here, so let's hold it there for the moment, and we'll pick up that uh, part of the story when we return from these messages. Fakers, fixers, and takers. He's Dan Proft, and this is the Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the program. We are talking with John Lott about selective media reporting and uh, the impact that it has on, on how people view the world. And John, right before we went to the break, you were starting to say that in addition to the, some of the, uh, you know, the police shooting uh, reporting, uh, there's also a remarkable uh, selectivity in the way that our press talks about um, mass public shooters. Uh, p- pick that up, if you would. Right. I mean, one of the themes that you'll frequently see in the media is that these shooters are overwhelmingly white. Um, and... Uh, but the thing is, when you look at it, you'll find over the last 20 years, about 58% of the mass public shooters are white. Uh, but, you know, if you look at white share of the general population, excluding people of Middle Eastern descent, whites make about 75% of the total U.S. population. So they're actually 
you know, they're a majority, but they're underrepresented in terms of their share of the population. If you look at people like Middle Eastern Arab descent, they make up uh, 1% of the population, less than 1%, but they account for about 8% of the shooters. And But when the media covers these things, uh, they'll mention the race when it kind of fits this template that they have. Uh, and they'll try to shoehorn people into different political views. So you have something like the New Zealand killer uh, who was racist, and they'll go and describe him as a right-winger. Uh, but what they fail to note is that his uh, his racism was because he was an environmental extremist, that he didn't like minorities because he thought minorities tended to have more kids than whites did, and that having more kids... Uh, was bad for the environment, that we should have fewer people rather than more people. And when you had the El Paso shooter uh, afterwards, again, they described him as a, uh, as a right-winger. When uh, he viewed his views as being identical to the New Zealand killer, and he had the same reason for wanting to go and kill minorities uh, because he was an environmentalist extremist. Uh, the New Zealand guy, the, if, in his manifesto, uh, the one country that he liked the most in the world was communist China. He wished the entire world could be run on that type of model. That hardly seems like a right winger to me. But well, my observation, you know, John, is that you know unless you're a card carrying uh, you know Bernie Sanders volunteer, they will slot you as a right winger. You know that's that's the default. Yeah, no, I think that's true. The the thing is that I think they have. Uh, Real blame, though, for creating a lot of the racial uh, divisions in this country by by going and selectively reporting the race of people involved in different types of crimes and ignoring it in other cases. I I I don't you know I just think that um, whatever their reason is, it may be political. Uh, you know, it's kind of hard to go and explain why um, uh, you know you find the foreign press be more accurate in uh, going to space of people involved than uh, than the U.S. press. Obviously, they have that information, uh, but they decide to go and uh, report in a in a in a biased way there. And and to the extent that we have riots because people think that there is this type of racial discrimination occurring by police that you have white officers kind of just without provocation, going and shooting uh, blacks um, is a real disservice. I mean, you take something like the Atlanta shooting that we just had. You see very little video coverage of, uh, of the video of the officers dealing with that individual. Uh, it was white officers shooting a black uh, suspect in that case. But if anybody were to watch the 45 minutes of uh, body camera there, the police officers were very courteous dealt with the person is by the book exactly uh, right up until the time where this relatively large guy who was much larger than the police officers attacked him and stole the stun gun. Uh, you know, I just think if, if, you know, there are bad cases like the Minneapolis uh, uh, shooting that occurred, or not shooting, but the death of uh, Floyd or George Floyd there. And, uh, uh, you know, and they will give huge coverage to that tape, but then other tape um, they don't give coverage to that would give people a very different impression. And so 
you have this narrative of just the white officer shooting a black and people don't have this overall context there. You know, you made the point about the the case in Seattle where the vehicle goes into the Black Lives Matter protesters and the the press forgets to mention the driver's black and the protesters are white. We had a a, a case here in Minnesota where I live, uh, you know, in in the course of the riots that went on in Minneapolis, there was a Black Lives Matter uh, protest, uh, and they were going to they were going to shut down a major north south highway, the biggest highway we've got. And our Department of Transportation announced that, that that in order to accommodate these demonstrators, the highway would be closed at six p.m. Well, then on short notice, they said, "No, no, we're going to close it at five p.m." But some innocent truck driver who who delivered a load of gasoline to a gas station inside the riot zone, or he was the one guy who volunteered to make the delivery, white guy, an immigrant, he got onto the highway because the Department of Transportation announced the closing but didn't close it. They hadn't gotten it closed, the the highway ramps. And so here he is innocently driving up the highway. And the first thing he knows there's anything going on, there's, you know, 2,000 people standing on the, you know, walking on the highway. He's shocked. He slams on his brakes. He manages to stop. These, these demonstrators pull him out of his car, beat him to a pulp. He finally gets rescued and then he gets arrested and jailed. Right. Yeah, it was an, and 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 within minutes after it happened, the majority leader of the Minnesota House of Representatives did a tweet in which he alleged that this guy had a Confederate flag and white supremacist stuff, you know, on his truck. Total lie. I'm mean, just a complete fabrication from the majority leader of the Minnesota House of Representatives, and the whole thing was intended to um, to push this narrative, you know, the racial narrative to stir up. Division. We see that kind of thing all the time. Right. No, and it's sad. And uh, I kind of wonder how much violence we have in this country uh, occurs because of the way the media covers these things and the fact that they go and have this template that they try to force things into. Um, You know, uh, there are people out there who believe the media and who do think that there is this systematic bias that's occurring by uh, by police officers against blacks. And uh, Hey, John, we're bumping uh, up against another break. Can I hold you over for one short segment? Sure. This is the Dan Prof Show. We're talking with John Lott. And John, right before the break, you were talking about the fact that many people have this view that the United States is beset with systemic racism. And a lot of it is due to selective reporting by the media. Right. Look, I mean, if the media gives national news coverage to when white officers shoot black suspects, but doesn't give the same national news coverage to, you know, uh, black officers shooting blacks or black officers shooting whites. It's going to, you know, you can't blame people for having that perspective. I mean, you see the same thing over the years with guns. You know, if you just see news coverage of bad things happening with guns, but not the fact that People use guns defensively about five times more frequently to stop crime than they use guns to commit crime. You know, how can you blame people for having the view that uh, that guns are used more to cause damage than they are to stop it? 
Let's talk you a little know, more about the same thing with mass public shootings. I mean, on our website at crimeresearch.org, we literally have dozens of cases where what otherwise would have been a mass public shooting was stopped by people with permanent concealed handguns. But yet, when those heroes arise, uh, you're lucky to get local media coverage. You virtually never get national media coverage on those stories. Now, of course, you're an expert on, on firearms. I've written a lot on, on the data on, on, on gun use and so on. And one of the things really ironic here, you know, we have this huge movement to defund the police at the same time that a lot of jurisdictions are letting criminals out of uh, prison. And as a result, uh, we're seeing a real surge in, in uh, people interested in self-defense. Right. I mean, if you want to see what the results of defunding police are, <clears throat> Just look at all the orders that different uh, mayors have given to police to stand down during these riots. Uh, you know, the thing is, you have the irony that in Minneapolis, uh, you have uh, city council members who are spending $7,000 a week on armed private security for the, for the city council members that are there. And yet at the same time, those city council members want to disband the police. Uh, the city there ordered the police to stand down and even abandon a police station during the riots. And these are the same people who oppose individuals being able to go and own guns or even have uh, concealed handgun permits. The thing is, who gets hurt the most by those types of policies? It's basically poor blacks, the people who are most likely victims of these crimes, whose parts of the city are being burnt out and their jobs are being destroyed or the businesses that they might own are being destroyed or they're not going to have places to go and shop. If you want to see the long-term consequences of those types of riots, go look at a place like Detroit, which in the 50s, uh, in the early 60s, was the wealthiest large city in the United States. You still have parts of Detroit which are burnt out. Yeah, never came back from the 1960s. So, John Lott, thank you very much for being with us. Really appreciate it. And that's going to be it for tonight's uh, Dan Proft Show. I'm John Hinderocker from Powerline. I hope you've enjoyed the program. Fake news. He's always got the real story. This is the Dan Proft Show. You are fake news.